Welcome to episode five of Redboard Rewind. Our special guest today is Doug McPherson, the Woodbine public handicapper. Today we talk a day in the life of a public handicapper, what it's like being a hot walker, and a few races from this weekend's card. This is Redboard Rewind. like to welcome in our special guest doug mcpherson doug how you doing today i'm doing well guys how are you i'm doing all right so just some basic kind of life of a public handicapper what's a normal day normal day-to-day type thing for you as you're doing a public handicapper throughout the week well so my role i got three different jobs at woodbine uh i work in our race office as an entry clerk I do our journal, and um, I work in, with Equibase as one of my chart callers. So I'm really busy here at Woodbine. Uh, Tuesday through Friday mornings, I'm in the race office, you know, taking entries. Uh, I go home after entries and work on the journal, except on Wednesdays and Fridays when I go straight to the front side, and you know, there I'll be working on, rate, you know, the handicapping between chart calling, and um, you know, I'm just constantly busy here at Woodbine. With being a chart caller, does that tend to help you more with your trip handicapping, do you think? Or before you did it, do you think it helps you any better? Uh, well, it just it definitely makes me, you know, I make sure I'm watching all the races. I'm here every race day. So um, the chart calling itself doesn't really help the, the, um, the trip handicapping because really you're just focusing on the position of each horse. But I watch the replays and I'm always at the races. So, I, you know, I'm paying attention to what's going on. And then I know you said you're doing it in between. About how many hours do you think it would take for you to handicap a card for? Uh, it depends on the card. I'd say on average, a couple hours. Uh, at the start of the season, it was taking me longer because, of, you know, we had a lot of horses coming from south of the border. So I was catching up on replays, um, watching replays from last season for races I hadn't really remembered. Now that we're further into the season and I'm watching all the races and stuff is just a bit more ingrained in my mind. I'm not watching as much replays. I'm going more on my own notes. Uh, so it's not taking quite as long, but yeah, I'd say a couple hours on average. So what are some of your favorite angles uh, when you are handicapping? Um, I'm not really a big angles person. I don't, especially when it comes to, you know, trainer and jockey angles. I'm really not interested in those at all. I think they're really overrated. They generally affect prices in a negative way. Uh, and I, I, I really don't think they're very relevant. Most of what I pay attention to is just observations about the horses themselves. Um, yeah, I, but like I said, I'm not a big angles kind of guy. Now, I know that you grew up in a horse racing family or father i believe was a trainer and uh you're 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 actually a hot walker on the backside. uh how much does that help you with like your physicality and handicapping that way not much i'm i'm no trainer myself i'm not gonna you know i can point out a horse that looks good but i mean i'm not gonna go to the sale and tell you who's got you know who's got great confirmation yada yada that's not my strong suit 
my dad's definitely taught me to be a bit of an outside of the outside the box thinker. He doesn't buy a lot of the BS that you know a lot of other people in the industry do. Um, but yeah, it, hot walking was just a job. So if you're not much of an angles person, do you do what do you mostly focus on fundamental wise then? Um, so my biggest thing, you know, I, I watch all the races here, so I understand the class it would buy more than just the claiming prices that horses are angled for. Uh, you know, you can point out any given 15 non two, and I can tell you that was a really good 15 non two, or a lot of them were worth 25, or that was a bad group, or most of them are going to be dropping. Uh, so my strength of Woodbine is really just a really good knowledge of our horse population. If I were to do this at, you know, for New York or, you know, California, I, w- I wouldn't have the same, the same edge that I do at Woodbine. Now, for me, when I'm covering New York, I'm trying to build kind of a buyer par class chart. So do the buyers come in like for you a lot? Or is it like, so for me, if let's say the buyer par is a 70 and the winner is a 64, I would tend to think that that is a much weaker race than if the winner ran like a 75. Is that kind of how you figure out dropping and jumps or is it something more interesting than that? It's not really that it's interesting. I I like speed figures. I like buyers. I don't go out of my way with anything more, uh, more extravagant than that. I'm a DRF kind of guy, but. Yeah, speed figures are good, but they're not the gospel. I really like looking for figures that I think are not good figures. Like a few weeks ago, probably about a month or so ago, we had a race. It was like a maiden 10. And like every horse that was coming out of that race got like a way bigger figure than they'd ever run. Like the winner got a 70 and everybody else was in like the mid 60s. And for the most part, these were horses that were, you know, high 50s horses at best. So I kind of knew every horse coming out of that race, I was going to fade coming back because I knew people were going to bet that figure, and I, I had a good feeling it was probably not a legit number. And sure enough, most of them came back, and they didn't run badly, but they didn't run up to that high figure that they had all posted. You know, to me, that's one thing. It's kind of suspicious when every horse in a race suddenly improves almost 10 points. I kind of get suspicious about that. That's, that's a very, very good point. Now, you said your dad kind of gave you some lessons. Can you kind of get into some of the lessons were from him? Tough to say, you know, any specific lessons that I've learned from him. It's just things that I've kind of picked up talking from him and claiming horses, you know, over the years. Like when I started my dad, you know, when I started working for my dad, we had a stable of probably 11 or, you know, 11 or 12 horses, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. And looking at his stats, you would just pitch him automatically because we had just awful awful horses you know they're they're all horses that have fond memories of but they were not very talented um and then a few years later we picked up some you know better clients and um you know we you know we have some more good years now but uh the basic thing that i've learned from my dad is you know don't just let what you see on paper be entirely what you you know you got to see more than just what's on the paper Guy can be the best trainer on the backstretch, but if he's got no horse, you know, nothing worth running, he's not going to do any good. So, you know, you, you've got to learn to see the opportunities when a, you know, a good trainer who's not getting any opportunities just has a live horse. And the same with riders, you know. The riders are really overrated in terms of how much they affect the horse's performance. So if you can see an 8% rider that you realize has, you know, just as much talent as anybody else in the room, you can capitalize because they don't get bet. But it's just really just looking past the paper. 
Now, did your dad being a trainer, did he handicap as well? Or did you kind of were the one who, you know, just became a handicapper all by your own? So my dad's not a gambler per se, right? But he's the kind of guy when he knows he's got a live horse and he knows the price is way too much, he'll bet, you know, 20 across or 50 to win or whatever. Um, so my dad, he, it's not that he got me interested in gambling, but my interest in the betting and handicapping came. We had a horse when I was a kid that I really, really liked. She was my favorite horse. She was a filly called Give Your Head a Shake. And, uh, we were, you know, we were running at the end of the season, just, we were selling her after the race, but we were running her one more time. And, you know, I looked at the program and I said, you know, she really doesn't look too bad in this race. She was jumping in class, but they were mostly mediocre horses. So I'm like 13 at the time or whatever. I bet like two bucks across on her and she was 40 to one and she finished second and I made like 40 bucks on her or whatever. So that kind of sparked my interest in, wow, you know, if, if something goes right, I can make a little bit of money doing this. And then it just kind of went on from there. It's always that one race. Like if you listen and read the buyer books or the Davidowitz books, they both have one specific like horse that kind of got them on the trail. Uh, now, for me, I'm not a big synthetic handicapper. What's the biggest difference between dirt and synthetic, do you think? Uh, synthetic is a lot more turf-like. Like, on, like I find on the synthetic, if you're going out to, like, a lot of people complain that speed doesn't do well on synthetic. You know, you get route races, horses will go in 25 and change, and then they won't, you know, they won't go wire to wire the way, the way they would on dirt, right? But the way it works on synthetic is the closers are going to kick no matter what, no matter how slow the pace is. So when you slow that pace down, you're giving the closers an edge. They don't got as much work to do. They'll kick on and only have, you know, four lengths to make up as opposed to 10. So on synthetic, you really got to, you got to let your horses get comfortable. If they, you know, if you got a horse that wants to go 48 flat going mile and a 16th, you let them go, you let them relax and you got a way better shot at going all the way than you do on dirt. And, uh, you know, it's just really looking for people that understand that. And that's the hard part, getting because it's a very hard concept for people to get. They think it's math. They think the slower they go, the better chance they should have of going all the way. And it, it just doesn't work like that. It's something that Jonathan Kinchin always talks about on the other show, inviting the closers into the race. Is there a difference, like, if it gets too hot on the synthetic surface or if it starts to rain and there's, like, a deluge? Does that really change anything about the surface at all or not as much? Uh, a lot of people think that when it rains or when it gets a little colder, it kind of tightens it up and makes it a little speed favoring. And I, I tend to agree. I, I definitely think the rain tightens it up a bit. Uh, the biggest thing about Woodbine and our weather, and I was talking about this on with Jason Beam the other day, is this is a really windy place. Traditionally, the wind here comes out of the west, and it's a, it's a tailwind down the backside. And it kind of plays fair because the speed's getting an easy trip down the backside, but they got to hold on in the stretch. But when you really see it have an effect is when it comes out of the east and it's a really strong headwind down the backside. And it just really, the speed really struggles. They run hard into it. And then when they got to hold off, they've just got nothing left. And horses that get kind of the covered up harness trip have a huge advantage when the wind's coming out of the east like that. I had a couple of races. I know I sent you an email the other day. Would you like to get started on those? The first race would be the crowning jewel from Saturday, the Woodbine Mile Race 9 you had the cold super one five seven ten paid five hundred and twenty seven dollars. The winning buyer was a one oh one for El Tormenta. Do you want to tell me how you kind of got to, you know, those four horses exactly? Because I couldn't find the winner even after the race got run. Yeah. So El Tormenta, uh, this is a kind of an interesting horse. So um, his first, he was supposed to run in a second level allowance at the start of the year. 
that he was still eligible for that. But the race got rained off the turf, and they decided to scratch, and they ran him in the Connaught Cup, which is a great two. Uh, so they ran him a week later in that instead. And he showed a real new dimension. He had previously always been a runoff speed horse, and uh, this time he settled behind horses really nice and um, angled out and made a run. So he really impressed me there. I think he got like a 98 buyer that day. And then his next three races, he just had these nightmarish trips where he couldn't find room for the life of him. So, you know, I, I just kind of decided, you know, his 98 figure when he won is 10 points lower than Godstorm, who's the horse he's trying to beat, right? So Godstorm is probably not going to run another lifetime best, and El Tormenta is probably going to run better than he had in his last three races if he gets some trip luck. So I'm like, you know, he's not that far out of it. He has the home field edge. He's got a good post. We'll see what happens. And um, just worked out that it it just worked out. That's just, you know, I got lucky there. Uh, got Stormy. I wasn't really going to pitch her. I have a lot of respect for her. The other two that I put in for third or fourth, um, Raging Bull and Luke Collin, that's really just luck of the draw. You know, I, I could have gone with any other two horses underneath there for the most part. You know, you can make a case for all those horses to run good, and it just so happens the two I landed on run good. There's no, no secret there. That's just good luck. With Got Stormy, she had run those two great races back to back, and then when you run a lifetime buyer like that, the bounce is probably going to end up happening. With El Tormenta, you got the jock switch to Eureka da Silva, which to me was really the only kind of way that I could come up with the horse at forty-four to one when the leading rider just all of a sudden jumps on. Now he wasn't going from like you know minor journeyman. I believe it's the he was going from the second leading rider to the first leading rider. Any reason with the da Silva upgrade? So the rider change really had nothing to do with the selection. I don't like betting real obvious rider changes like that because generally they take money. People are going to bet the Silva because it's the Silva. Really, that that's just the way it was. I think, you know, I have a feeling. I don't know what went on with this rider change. I don't know if it was a rider change or if Fernandez just decided he wanted to ride another horse or whatever it may have been. It's funny, I should know because I'm at the office, but I really don't. And I haven't asked, you know, Gail or, you know, Hernandez or De Silva's agents, and I'm really not that interested. Um, you know, the rider change doesn't really, I don't really care one way or the other. Now, with the last two races for El Tormenta, he lost to a horse that was in this race, Silent Poet. But I noticed that that horse wasn't anywhere in your selections. Was it just more of like too much speed you thought in the race or? Well, yeah, he had, an, he had an easy time when he won the Play the King, or not the Play the King, it might have been the Play the King, I can't remember. Whichever race he won, he, he got the lead. He's a natural speed horse. He probably wasn't going to get that today. And El Tormenta probably wasn't going to get screwed out of the womb the way he had in the previous race before, right? So I didn't really, you know, I could have put him third or fourth. But, you know, again, I could have put him somewhere underneath. I just chose not to. Now, when you hear the backstretch gossip, does that kind of, play a tune in the way your selections go, or you kind of just block all that out? Depends on who I hear it from. <laughs> There's some people who they'll tell you something and you know, they're, they're probably telling you something legit. You know, if I can think about what they say and, you know, wind it into my beliefs about a horse or something, I might use it. But a lot, a lot of people I tune out, it's not worth going against your own gut for somebody else's uh, gossip. And then with raging bull, when I was looking through this race, it just seems like, uh, he's becoming the underneath horse in a way. He's had four starts this year. He's only hit the board twice, but he's improved in every start. Do you kind of see this horse as always being an underneath horse like the rest of the year? Or do you think they're going to find a spot for him where he can win a race? 
Well, I mean, it depends. If he's got to run against, you know, El Torment and God Storm, he'd probably keep him underneath. If he catches a, you know, goes in a grade three where he's going to be, you know, where he's going to have a class edge, I'll take him in that race. Depends on the price, obviously. But, like, let's say Raging Bull's 44 to 1. The next time those three horses meet, you take Raging Bull every time. But, you know, it's he's just got to win the races. I think the Chad Brown factor will probably keep that horse away from 44 to one. Yeah, also, I, exactly. I, I think there was a formulator stat like Chad Brown at over 26 to one is like never won a horse race or something like that. It's some crazy stat that I thought I looked up in formulator. Like he 20 over 26 to one. He's like, Oh, for 22 or something like that. Some, some crazy stat. Yeah. Let's jump over to uh, the next, the next race. This would be race 12 at Woodbine. It was a maiden Claiming race, 15,000, seven and a half, two turns on the turf. Now, there might be another place in Florida, but this is really the only place where they do two turns on the turf at seven and a half. Uh, what yeah, makes that? There's any- a couple, couple cheaper tracks like Indiana Grand or whatever, maybe. But yeah, probably, this is probably the only other A circuit track with a seven and a half turf race. Now, is there anything that you really look for in the two and a half? It's because it's more, it's definitely a sprint and a route combined in a way. Are there any like things that you look at for that or no? Um, I, I definitely treat the seven and a half like route races. Uh, really, I think when we look at individual distances, like the difference between six and six and a half, and people say, oh, this horse gets a little tired, I don't know, or oh, this one's a closer, he might need the extra 16th. I really think that's a lot of nonsense. Um, races are, horses are more, it's more important how the race sets up in front of them, not the number of furlongs they're running, right? Um, so like a horse like Stokes, who I picked in that race, she's a speed horse that gets a little tight. You know, she got run down going seven last time. So that's yeah. kind of why I picked her, uh, just because I know she'll go seven and a half, just fine. She's going to probably get an easier lead if no one else goes with her and she'll get to relax a little more. Um, and Lily bet picked her up and ruined that idea, but yeah, it's, I treat it like a road race. It just happens to be a short road race. I mean, they definitely seem to be going fast in that race, and Lilibet had a really, really crafty trip from Campbell there. Uh, the winning buyer was only, I believe, a 54, so it was just inside the buyer par if you take off a couple points like I do. Uh, the, is it really when you're looking at maiden races more of, like, the class drops, or are you more of the pace, like you said, you like Stokes because you thought you'd kind of be alone on the lead there, or she would be alone on the uh, lead? It depends on the group of horses, right? Um with that race, I thought they were a lot of very samey-looking horses. I didn't really think Stokes would be the favorite the way she was. I can't remember who was the favorite in that race, but I wasn't expecting to pick him the favorite. And, um, uh, it just depends on the way I see the race setting up. Stokes was the favorite. And one way that I handicap maiden races is try and like, not make it go quicker, but little bet was 0 for 15 with 6 seconds. So to me, that horse is almost an automatic toss-out. But if you look three back in her PPs, she had run at a higher class level, a 61 buyer, closing off slow fractions. I mean, that race there stands out like a sore thumb, and you end up getting, you know, 650 or, you know, right at 6-1, to like halfway to 7-1. to She got up by a nose, but it's a really, really sweet $15 mutual. Yeah, the thing about Lilibet that I liked was that she'd run good on the inner turf courses, like at Laurel last year. Um, mm-hmm. I probably, in hindsight, I should have probably put her on top, but I, I don't like the wider posts when we go seven and a half because I'm always paranoid they'll get a wide, you know, they'll get hung wide on both turns, and I really, really, really hate that on turf. Yeah, uh, that you know, 
I don't really worry about the, uh, you know, the 0 for 15 and those kind of maiden races, especially when they're running good. A lot of that can be bad luck and circumstance. It's real easy to pitch those kind of horses. And when they're 7 to 1 and they look competitive, I don't like finding reasons to talk myself off of a 7 to 1 shot. Okay, that's very interesting. Now, like you talked about the uh, being wide on both turns. Is that a big difference based on this turf course to the other course, or does it kind of matter, or, do, or does it not matter on either course? I hate being Well, it probably matters more on the inner turf because the turn is more narrow. Um, but I just I don't like being wide on the turf at all. I find I find on turf you want to save ground, you want to get covered up. You know, I, I treat it almost like harness racing, where you want that cover because horses can accelerate. So when you don't have that early resistance, you've got a big edge when you can angle out and make you know have that kick. So I, I really want to be able to find horses that save ground and get covered on turf. The next and final race I wanted to talk to you about was. Race four at Woodbine, it was a $25,000 non-winners to two lifetime, another six furlongs on the turf course. Ten to one shot you picked, Hurricane Emily. How did you end up on this uh, nice priced horse? Yeah, that race actually ended up getting range off the turf, I think. I think we ran on the synthetic. Um, Hurricane, so that was a race. It was a 25 non-two, but I thought it was a really bad 25 non-two. I thought they were all about, you know, for the most part, they were all 15s. Uh, Hurricane Emily, uh, one of my, you know, Marty Drexler and somebody bought that horse with Dave Cody recently, and they tried some stuff with her. They put a set of blinkers on her. They took her off Lasix. She's always kind of a horse that showed some run, but never got the job done. She'd hang a lot. So I just liked that, you know, the changes were kind of interesting. She was running good. And like I said, she would run for 15 last time. She was catching a 25 that were all really weak. So people aren't going to bet her as much because she's jumping in class. And I, I really didn't think it was a class jump at all. So really just took a shot with her there and it worked out. Now, I know you talked about with uh, figuring out like if a class of during the races is good or bad. When you try and find a field that is good, like what would be a good f- group going forward? group that I think can all come back and win for 25 or win for 40. You got guys taking an edge, taking a drop, that kind of stuff. It's really tough to define, right? It's just, I watch all the races here. I know all the horses, you know, because I, I can, you know, you can name me any horse that runs here and I can probably tell you what class they sit on off the top of my head. So it's, it's just an acute knowledge for who races here. And how do you, is it just from watching all the races over and over again, you can kind of just make that distinction of this horse would do good on a single drop. This horse probably needs a double drop, stuff like that. Uh, again, I don't even worry about that because for all I know, they could drop the horse, but catch a bunch of other 25s dropping. So it's not really a drop, right? You know, you just, you judge it when you see the PPs. Very interesting. Now, going back to some of the other general questions from earlier, you said that you're also in the entry box, the uh, being a uh, claim person. How does that help you with handicapping, or does it at all? It doesn't, it doesn't. You know, sometimes you know a guy, he might have entered for 25, but the race didn't go, so he hiffed over for 15. So, you know, I might have that in the back of my mind, but um, it's also easy to get too caught up in that. The thing I like about that is I get to talk, you know, I talk to a lot of the trainers and if they have a horse that I'm kind of curious about, I might ask them, you know, Hey, what's, you know, what's the deal with this one? Yada, yada. And some guys, you know, they're not as, they're not particularly open with, you know, what they want to tell me, but some guys will, you know, they'll tell me, Oh, you know, this is a little up with her. She's got this problem. And you know, it's, it, I find it interesting and you know, it's 
that's kind of what I like about it, is just talking to people, learning a bit about their horses, not just about what they're doing. Between the three jobs that you do, which one do you find the most interesting? Probably the chart calling. It's a very relaxed job. I'm up in the press box with a few guys, and it gives me an opportunity to make sure I see every race. That, that's what I like is the racing. You know, working in the race office is great. I work with a great group of people there, and it's it's definitely an interesting, uh, you know, facet to my career. But the, the chart calling is uh, the chart calling is a lot of fun. And then you can try and bring both of those into the handicapping world, and it kind of would make it a little bit easier, especially when you're watching every race every day, and you don't have to kind of go back and watch replays like a lot of us do. Every single day, we're watching, you know, eight nine replays a day. If we miss a day, you're there every day, so you can kind of take a couple notes on the side as well. Yeah, exactly. I can do it as I'm going. And um, I'm also fortunate. Like, I got to give credit. I work with a couple sharp guys up there. You know, we got Ron Gear King from the DRF. Uh, we got another guy, Craig Peacock, who's a longtime race tracker here. Uh, my co-worker, my co-chart uh, caller, Paul Turney. We're all up there. And uh, for the most part, we're all following the races pretty closely. So it's one of the nice things. If one of us picks up on a track bias, we can all start looking back at it and saying, yeah, you know, Ronnie was right or whatever. So it helps having other you know, other good people up there with you to just kind of uh, keep you on the ball about stuff. Once the season's over, do you do anything else in the racing industry or you just kind of take your time off once Woodbine closes? Uh, the, the last two winters, I went down to Palm Meadows and worked for Stuart Simon. He's a fairly prominent trainer here um, just to get away. I like the Florida weather in the winter much better than the Ontario weather. Uh, <laughs> this, it's it's much nicer, but this year, just with the extra work doing the journal, like I keep making the same bad joke that with the journal this year, I'm doing more homework than I ever did in high school or college. So I'm, I'm looking forward to just taking a bit more of a break this year. Like the last two years, we finished racing on Sunday, and I've been in my car Monday morning going to Florida. So this year, I'm looking forward to taking a break. I'm going to do a little bit of traveling. Um, I'll help my dad. My dad will board a few of his horses at a farm in town, and I'll go help him out in the mornings and... Uh, just take it easy, I think. That sounds great. Uh, Doug, I want to thank you so much for your time here on the podcast, and thanks for taking some time out of your day. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Of course. And now to close out this podcast, I'd like to bring in the producer, Peter Thomas Forntail. Pete, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. I'm still recovering, Spencer, from absolutely butchering your name on the Steve Bick Show today. I'm not proud of that, but uh, it's good to be here. It's good that you weren't too offended. And I really enjoyed, just as a listener, hearing what uh, Doug McPherson had to say. A lot of really good stuff there about lessons he learned from his dad and what he had to learn on his own and synthetic and how he looks at that and the turf racing being like harness racing I, I thought was very very interesting uh, I thought you did a great job on that and wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about what's going on over at the, the Daily Gallop and what you're looking forward to wagering on this weekend so we got some really really cool things going on over the Daily Gallop I've been trying to figure out a way to you know, make a Twitter-wide tournament slash head-to-head type matchup thing. So what we did earlier this week, uh, the voting's already closed. We had a poll for what track, and then we had two other polls featuring the contestants. And the two uh, winners on each poll would then face off in a head-to-head. And what it ended up being was they're going to be playing at Parks on Saturday for Pennsylvania Derby and Cotillion Day. And the matchup is going to be uh, John Piasek, who used to work under Dan Torchman at his website, Anonymous Racing, 
and uh, Vinny Blonde from Real Dynasty uh, picks. So that matchup will be fun. Neither of them really cover parks at all. Vinny's more, more of a New York guy. John's more of a Maryland guy. So it should be a very interesting matchup. And if you go to the Daily Gallup Twitter page, we have a nice little trophy. And the goal of this will kind of be to uh, whoever wins on Saturday. I'll mail it out first thing Monday morning. As soon as they find it in their mail, they're going to take a picture of it, put it on, <laughs> put it on Twitter. And then the next matchups will begin. Hopefully we can get some really cool matchups between, you know, seasoned handicappers, you know, very well-known people on Twitter, public handicappers, and, you know, just the average Joe. And hopefully we can get this thing traveling around the country, you know, and if we get enough support, you never know, we might end up starting to do tag team divisions going back to the wrestling days. So um, something I'm really, really looking forward to Uh, tonight or tomorrow, we should have a page up on our website explaining everything that we're going to be doing for it. And if anybody's interested, please go to the Daily Gallup on Twitter and just send us a DM saying you'd like to make the list. And we're going to try and make it as fair as possible for everybody. And if we get enough uh, interest in it, who knows for next week, we might have a couple of matchups. It sounds fun. I really think that's cool. Now, will the picks be available so people can follow along the contest? And what format is the contest? Are we talking about a $2 win place pick and pray? What are we, what are we dealing with here? So we're doing, it's $2, one place in show. The contestants will have to have their picks in before the first race goes official. That way, if there's scratches and it's only two picks, so I want someone to give a primary and alternative pick, more tournament style. That way, if a horse does have a late scratch or something, they at least have a chance with their alternative. If both of them scratch out, it's going to have to be a big fat goose egg for that race, unfortunately. No post-time favorites. No post-time favorites. Okay, okay. I mean, hey, with two selections, somebody should uh, be able to. Uh, hopefully that won't come into play anyway. Yeah, we're hoping that by allowing it to be before the first race, that they have all their picks in for every race, that it won't be like, oh, both of your horses scratched out because it got rained off the turf. And plus, people don't like the post-time favorite rule already for the pick four and pick five, so I thought, okay, let's just take it out of play completely. No, yeah, I don't have a big problem with it. Again, it shouldn't really uh, it shouldn't really matter, and if you get that unlucky, well, you get that unlucky, not the end of the world. I think this idea has tremendous potential. I'm going to be following with interest. I can think uh, uh, of some really fun possibilities down the line and maybe some formats involving a contest site partner where – you could uh, start off with a big field and winnow down to the folks who then get to compete in the brackets and in these matchups as time goes on. But one step at a time, I'll be following with interest. Tell people one more time where they can see the selections and follow along. So you'll be able to see the selections for sure on Twitter at the Daily Gallup. Hopefully we'll be also, if somebody is free, Saturdays are super tough for me because of my work at the restaurant. Hopefully we can get somebody to post them on the website as well which is the dailygallop.net. And that's pretty much, we have uh, somebody's covering Pennsylvania Derby this weekend. We have our normal stuff, Belmont, uh, Santa Anita, I know is starting up soon. So for all you West coast guys, we got some really sharp West coast guys towards the end of the month. So that's what it is for now, Pete. I like the sound of that. And again, be following along with interest. That's going to wrap it up for this week. I would like to thank my special guest, Doug McPherson for joining me today. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's business manager is Drew Coatney. The chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And the In The Money Media president is Pierre Thomas Fornetale. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time.